0: Hey there, squash fans, and thanks for coming back to another episode of The Breakdown with me, your host, Connor O'Malley, and my wonderfully salty co-host, Bill Buckingham. We have another great show for you today, and we're excited to be adding a new segment where we have a guest that joins us to share their insights and expertise. So today in our R&R segment, we talk about how Bill gets his rest and relaxation and dig into vacations. Our main topic today was sparked by a Twitter comment where a tour player asked the question, is College Squash a good thing for the pro tour? And beyond hearing what Bill and myself have to say, we are thrilled to be joined by David Pullman, who is the executive director of College Squash to weigh in on his thoughts and share some insights that aren't widely known. Lastly, we have our fan follow-up. Thank you to those who've reached out and we're giving them some shout outs. Bill still feels perplexed about this segment, but I think he's coming around. This is a bit of a longer show and we were tempted to break out the interview, but we've included some timestamps in the notes to help you know how long each segment is and uh, feel free to jump around. A quick thank you again to our sponsor, Baya Sports. They are both Bill and mine's favorite squash shoe ever because they feel great and they look great. And one of those big no-nos is we do sometimes wear them outside the house just because we like them so much. So go to biasports.us and check out their newest Force X. That's B-I-A sports.us. Thank you again for tuning in, and we hope you enjoy the show. What about this?
1: This call is being recorded. Just finished an hour of snow shoveling, so I'm raring to go here. Well, now you can shovel some other stuff. Exactly.
0: So remind me, what's the title of the show you were thinking of?
1: <laughs> well, it's not what I wanted, but I think our, our collaboration is growing stronger in, in episode seven. So the title is going to be four more years. What's your destination? Question mark. <laughs> so dun, yeah. Dun, dun. Dun. Perfect. All right. Ready? I'm ready. Let's go.
0: You normally say let's roll, but
1: I, I you right. know, I listened back to the first six episodes in preparation for this last night, which wasn't boring at all, despite what you may think. <laughs> and I said, let's roll three times and let's go three times. So, Oh,
0: interesting. Okay. Yeah. Well, let's mix it up. Welcome, welcome, welcome back to the breakdown. This is episode number what, Bill?
1: Episode number seven, Connor. Excited Saturday morning, beautiful outside, just snow shoveled, like I said before, for an hour. I'm I'm pumped up pumped
0: up. As am I.
1: Got exciting topics to talk about. Yeah. You look good today. We should do this. We should, we, you know what, we should evolve into a video podcast like others do. And because if people could see you right now, I tell you what, our listenership would go through the roof.
0: Would skyrocket. Yeah. Uh, no, skyrocket. I think so too. We do have aspirations of that. Um, mm-hmm. There's a lot, it's a, it's another layer of complications technology wise, but it's quickly getting there. So we, we will be turning this into a video soon enough the audience not seeing your your man button <laughs> is missing out <laughs> I, look i i believe that it's getting pretty <laughs> it's a full year of growth here bill oh my god that is yeah. so funny looking <laughs> so let's give a quick uh, overview of what we're going to talk about so the big debate going on that has sparked the internet at least in the squash world is the high level is kind of college squash versus professional squash And what does it all mean and what is good and bad. But before we get into that, we're going to do in our little R and R, which is a very, you know, ratings and rankings, but it's, it's very applicable here. And we're going to talk about vacations. My favorite subject next, next to squash
1: vacations, which we haven't taken in a long time, I mean, it seems like I'm a four, four solid vacation person a year. And it's been a year, uh, since I've taken a vacation. So raring to go a vacation right now is like smoking a cigar in my Jeep while looking at the ocean.
0: Yeah, well, I think that's why we kind of were picking this as a topic because we're in the thick of things here with the snow going and thinking of better times or warmer times, so to speak. And uh, some quick context to listeners and, and Bill, you really exposed me to this, that when we were working together at U.S. Squash, you were so good about planning your vacations. I was the opposite of that. I would never plan and barely take any vacation. And you were in there arguing or lobbying for every vacation day that you could get. Uh, you You had these all planned out early on. And so what I want to ask is like, what is your prescription for a great vacation?
1: Yeah, absolutely. But let, let's be fair about this. Like, you you didn't plan at all. So even if I did like a modicum of planning, if I had like, if I called like the day before and booked something, that would be more planning than you. But, uh, but yeah, 100%. I, I plan my vacations out well in advance. So if I think our vacation rotation was like fiscal year, July to June. So I get, you know, four weeks vacation or whatever it was, whatever the case may be, I would book my June vacations in january so i'd have my june yeah. vacation set in january i'd have my um my april vacation
0: set like two months prior to that and so i mean pl- plan and get I, it all I have out of the way. Evolved. i have evolved bill right and like remember that was in my 20s sure when when we were working together That's true. and yeah i would plan the kind of hey guys tomorrow i'm heading down to the british virgin islands right and everyone's like what well yeah out so of, yeah. Out, of, out of nowhere and out of are you, nowhere where, where yeah. you're
1: gonna stay connor oh i don't know my friend from uh, millbury prep or whatever you wherever you went to prep school has a place that maybe he might have an extra bedroom and next thing you know you're like you know either spending a thousand dollars on some kind of suite or you're like li- sleeping on the beach
0: fair that's very fair by the way yeah i mean bill to be fair we rented a, a small yacht that time so if, if you could get it straight and but this wasn't this was me saying yes to an opportunity not me flipping the bill so
1: Right, right. Um, Basically, you was, were like Cal, was
0: advantageous. Calgon, Connor, Calgon. Uh, It'd be a deep, re- deep reference for some people, but Calgon. You just said, "Take me away." Yeah. So, do you want to? Do you want to give any any sort of <laughs> no. explanatory there? or You just want people to go Google it.
1: Anybody over the age of fifty knows exactly what I'm talking about. So there you go. Okay. Well, Which is our core. Yeah. So that was my my exactly my prescription was plan ahead and look forward to it. And I, I, there was never a vacation that I didn't look forward to.
0: Well, there was also one thing, and I think in my youth, I didn't appreciate this, was you would do a lot of the same vacation stuff. Yeah, yeah. That was actually because you were like, this is what helps me get R&R. This is where I recharge, and it works. And so now... As as I've gotten a little bit older, I'm like that's smart. I get it, and uh, I'm I'm kind of the same way these days.
1: I'm yeah, like, you get a week, right? I mean, so you get a week, and it's a day of travel each way, depending on where you're going. So basically, in re- reality, you get five full days, and so you've only got five full days to so to spend. You know, any of that time trying to to like find what's good, what's bad, uh, not really worth it. If I had a, like two or three weeks, that'd be a different story. I would explore uh, all over the place. When we went to Europe, we took extra time and did new things and explored, but. In the summertime, especially, and in the wintertime in, in the New England, especially, when you just want to go somewhere warm and sit on a beach, it's best to know some place you've been before, you know where to go out to eat, you know what beach to go to, you know what time to go, different places. There's no surprises because those those five days go quick, man.
0: They go real quick. Totally. So let's give, um, I mean, you, you basically have two main vacation places that you go. So let's spell those out. Sure, sure. Uh, my two
1: main vacation places, Block Island in the summertime. Key West in the wintertime, um, both very, very different places and very similar places all at once. So um, I would say I have always said Key West was the best winter destination in the United States. Um, I, I I haven't been a ton of different places, as I just explained, but I have been, you know, so a few other spots for for work and for in previous careers and stuff, stuff where I was traveling for uh, for conventions and whatnot. But I, So I have been to those places, but Key West um, has everything. But Block Island, I would say if you had to name my number one, vacation destination in my life, it would be Block Island for sure. Yeah.
0: What do you think the characteristics are of Block Island that you find so appealing?
1: I think the fact that I could go there uh, with a backpack for a week and um, have maybe two pairs of shorts, four pairs of underwear, and three t-shirts and only wear like a quarter of that basically, I mean you could go anywhere there with the same shorts and t-shirt that you flip flops that you've been wearing to the nicest restaurant, to the, the diveiest bar, uh, to the beach, wandering around, you, you know, as my wife likes to say, personal hygiene suffers on the block for sure. So that, that, that is really appealing when it comes to vacation.
0: Yeah. I think that there's a level of saying casual is accurate, but doesn't feel like representative, like it's just a very casual environment and very welcoming and it's blown up it's changed obviously when we first started going it
1: was well really low key and now it's it's becoming very like Martha's Vineyard and
0: Nantucket for mm. sure uh, as 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 every place is well what i was going to say what the opposite of block island is is i wouldn't say it's pretentious yeah. and that's
1: No, not, not. So, so here's, uh, so uh, I discovered Block Island probably 20 some odd, you know, maybe 30 years ago when I first started uh, dating my wife. We, uh, we used to go away for her birthday when we first started dating every year. So we used to go like uh, on the weekend, we'd go to Newport, we'd go to uh, Saratoga, go to Boston, just go somewhere for the weekend of her birthday for the first few years. And then Mm -hmm. someone recommended Block Island to us. And we hopped on the ferry. It's a great, like a gray day. We just were going for the weekend. It was like, you know, a June. It's June, so in New England June could be like wintertime for sure if if you don't hit it right. So we get off. It's raining. It's drizzly. You get off in town. There's like it was really quiet, and there's like the it's kind of just gross. And we like we wandered around for like five minutes, and we're like, wow, this is it, huh? Um, this is really disappointing. Staying in like a little tiny B and B. We're like, yeah, let you know maybe if it it's, maybe we'll go home early. It won't come back. Da 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 da. So again, and, and interrupt me and tell me this story's long and stop it because I'm not getting to the point. Without.
0: This story's long and
1: stop <laughs> it. <laughs> so so I've always wanted I don't eat seafood. So you as you know, I don't eat seafood. So this is the time I said, you know what? We're in Block Island. I'm gonna eat some seafood. There's a, a restaurant called Finn's, actually. It's still there. Had a little balcony overlooking the harbor where the ferries come in. I'm gonna go in and this is the time I'm gonna try seafood. And um against my wife's warnings not to do it we went into this restaurant sat there and we were one of the few people there because it was off season and i ordered back then like 50 dollars worth of clams oysters uh shellfish basically raw shellfish which in retrospect isn't the best way to dive into to seafood um which i've learned but there's a lot of seafood back then Agreed. 50 bucks worth a ton a ton of seafood so we're sitting there looking at the water looking at the ferries coming in these guys come out with these trays, ridiculously big sized trays of seafood. And my wife barely eats it. I mean, she doesn't love it any more than I do. So take the first oyster, douse it with horseradish, hot sauce, slurp it down. We're like, yeah, well, this is great. Second one, slurp it down, maybe choke on it just a little bit. Maybe, maybe it didn't go down quite as smooth. Third one, couldn't do it. Slurped it, got it halfway in my mouth really? and spit it out. I, I couldn't do it. Oh my gosh. Yeah, I couldn't do it. So we, um,
0: we, um, <laughs> we looked the waiter, this, and waitress. this would be a perfect transition to our next topic, but I'm not going to be like, you gave it the good old college. Try. I
1: gave it the good old college. But, try. So, so we were the, the waiter and waitress. We were the only, pretty much the only ones there at that point. And the waiter and waitress were just two young college kids standing around. And they said, they came over and said, is like everything okay? And I was like, yeah, I said, and I explained to him, don't eat this stuff. Tried it. Just can't do it. And I said, do you guys want it? And they're like, what? And I said, here, do you guys want it? And you know, why throw it away? And like, you guys could sit here and eat it if you want. Nobody else is here. And they're like, really? And I said, yeah. They sat down, slurped away, ate away, you know, loving it, you know, loving the stuff. And I was like, is there anywhere on this island I could get a, a, a burger? And the kid, uh, the, the guy said, yeah, come with me. We paid our bill, followed him down. Uh, we didn't have a car, uh, followed him down into the parking lot. He, you know, took off his waiter apron. Um, he had an old stripped down Jeep Wrangler. With no back seat, we hopped in the back seat. He hopped in the front seat. Uh, He—I he, I don't know if this is safe to say—but he he took out a smokeable, um, and and lit it up and drove us about maybe like a quarter of a mile to the other side of uh of the of the of what is called um Old Harbor and dropped us off at a burger joint that was phenomenal. And I was like, we, we walked off, got out of the Jeep and like sat down and we're like, whoa, yeah, this place is awesome. And, uh, and never looked back and started going there that summer and have really li- literally gone there every summer since then. So
0: we're, we're talking nearly 30 years. Well, and all, all roads, will <laughs> be back to burger in this segment. Um, yeah, so definitely, it, well, and the one other thing I will say is that it's, it feels like in the prescription for a, a perfect vacation place. And this is almost mandated for you is you need an outdoor shower.
1: Yeah, for sure. That That's a key. When you when you look for the cottages there, that's the first amenity we look for.
0: And, you know, you, you also, um, you come to the vacation fully prepared, you know exactly what you're going to do, which is always impressive. I want to take a quick detour internationally, mm-hmm. because I think that I just remembered an interesting story when you were going to Italy. Mm-hmm. And, and this is when you're talking you got to tell the story you were talking with a, a us squash member no oh, yeah. in italy <laughs> yes yes you got so. this is this is one of the most random connections you you got to you got to tell this story yeah this guy i won't say his
1: name cuz i'm not sure he he would appreciate it but uh, well not a bad story but yeah he he had called up the office for some reason and i started talking to him and um, he was he wanted sit, Squash Magazine. He wanted Squash Magazine. Switched to his house in Italy because he lived in Italy like during the summertime and lived in uh, no lived in Italy during the wintertime. Lived in Newport, Rhode Island during the summertime. So I happened to have just planned a trip to Italy. We had never been abroad before, so we were uh, we, we were planning the trip. And I told him and I said, "Hey, could you give me some suggestions?" And he said, "Absolutely," and uh, set me up at, in 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 Rome during our Rome portion of, of it at this apartment in his apartment building, which didn't pan out in the end, the woman rented it and I, he ended up getting me a hotel across the street from, but we ended up yeah, on his balcony, eating, drinking red wine, eating meats and cheeses, overlooking the Coliseum in this ridiculous penthouse apartment, <laughs> which his son was visiting at the time. And like, when we walked in, he, he gave us the, what the F look, uh, like my dad's like picking up strangers again. Like we, we weren't the first ones he's done this to for sure. 100% sure. But then he followed us around to the, like his local restaurants and talked to like the chefs and bought us, told us to where to go to a pizza place and showed up, basically haunted us everywhere we went in, in Rome for those few days and called out the chefs to come cook special for us. So yeah, it was definitely an interesting connection and, and a good, a good, a good way to get introduced to Rome. How about you? How about you? Where do you go? Well, give me, give me, just give me something. What is your favorite vacation destination?
0: So I'll separate this in two different ways. It's basically a, a beach or non beach vacation. And I, I do love, being by the water i love beaches that kind of stuff and there, like one of the best was going to uh playa de carmen in mexico that was amazing the the bvis british virgin island was just beautiful so like those kind of places are just really great but and the reason why i respect more of your play here of like hey find a place that works and then just keep going there right right because you like you said like the the variables for me you know, you want time enjoying it, not just thinking of what, what to do next and how to get it done. So I, I'll say I do enjoy a good beach vacation. However, you know, Ireland just has a, a special place in my heart. And we took a trip there, gosh, in 2019, took my wife there for the first time. And it was just an incredible trip. And every time I go to Ireland, there, there just feels like a, a new discovery for me. For such a small island, mm-hmm. there's so many different places to go. And so it's. I feel like I'm always rediscovering a, a different part of Ireland every time yeah. I go. and Yeah yeah
1: it's nice uh, i've never been but I, yes i would like to go it's always difficult at this point though to go somewhere that's colder than where you took off from so if you like go to ireland in the summertime you're kind of missing the time in new england which there's only this there's, there's a short window in new england and then in the winter time you kind of want to yeah. go away to the beach somewhere just to get away from where you are so i always have trouble going somewhere that's colder
0: than where i took off from the weather in ireland i mean when we went in september i mean it was beautiful it was gorgeous yeah. it's gorgeous yeah. as they say gorgeous yeah. beautiful it's lovely.
1: And I think if we, we we wait like 15 20 years probably every place will be gorgeous and beautiful and, and before it all burns off <laughs>
0: before it all burns away. No politics. The, on this I, I show. will give a shout out though cuz Ireland has really good food and I don't think it gets acknowledged for that. So it's 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 so fresh. Everything is just made that day or that week. It's it's off the charts. So really
1: food uh, friendly know? place. <laughs> I, I, and and again, yeah, I, I believe you. But it, it, when people people always describe wherever they go is like the food's so fresh they make it that day or that week. I'm like, when when else would they have made it? <laughs> Do we really want to go someplace where they made it three weeks ago?
0: No, it, for me, that's more of an indication of like you know the Cisco places that are are getting it. <laughs> no, I got How you. much it's frozen and all I that stuff. You. So
1: so one, one time I'd
0: like personally it's say the yeah, ingredients. I,
1: got, I go there. The food the food was great. They make it like a month in advance. It's awesome. <laughs> well,
0: <laughs> <laughs> right. I, obviously that cracks you up more than the average bear but uh thank, thank you c- say vie. so all right <laughs> we are going to go into the main topic today in the breakdown and uh bill do you want to give us a little bit of a framework for what we are talking about today Sure. The uh, the hot topic on all the uh, the squash
1: boards and on Twitter and kudos to squash site, by the way, for codifying all this into a little bit more, an easier way to consume it. There's a, a yeah. Egyptian squash player named Mazen Hesham, the squash falcon, I think is what his nickname is on the tour. He tweeted and he, he's not a, a self, self-professed. self He does not tweet really that much. So, but he tweeted and he uh, said he wanted to have some opinions for people. He said, what do you think about U.S. college squash? So college squash in the United States, is it a good thing? Or a bad thing for the PSA tour and it set off uh, uh you know a maelstrom of opinions which which was great it was it was a really good debate and um a lot of you know pros chimed in you know some couch potato squash players like us chimed well i didn't but uh, like us chimed in the CSA chimed in uh even even the executive director of the CSA chimed in so it was a great debate back and forth so i i, I was reading it and i said hey it's, you know not a lot of uh, tournaments going on right now so let's let's talk about it and and, and see it because i know you're a, a college squash uh You're a big proponent of college squash. You're a fan of college squash. You played college squash. So I thought it would be a great topic for you to to launch on.
0: Yeah. And I have to admit that, you know, we've covered a variety of topics already in our breakdown series. And this was one of the most challenging for me. And I'm gonna give a quick preamble because what I was finding was this is such a layered topic. And so I'm gonna go, I'm gonna zoom out a little bit because I just wanna give this as a reference point for how I look at it. It's I don't think college is right for everyone. And I think that there's been this misperception that going to college will give you or help you achieve in life. And it's not for everyone. Frankly, I don't know if I, I loved participating in college squash for the experience and the team matches, but maybe, uh, you know, because I'm wired more as an entrepreneur, maybe I would have had a different path had I gone that way. So I think that there's different paths for everyone and college to me is not the answer. And then we also need to talk about that college in America is just such a different beast than other countries where it is not affordable in America. Tuition these days at uh, expensive colleges is $75,000 a year. So the value proposition here or the opportunity cost is a real discussion. We do need to uh, distinguish as within other sports is not everyone's getting a free ride here. And so there are real dollars out the door. And then also what's on the other side of if pro tour is something to consider where there's also not real dollars there until you crack the top 50 or even top 20 so there's this higher level debate out there that i think exists but what i am excited about bill is the fact that we're now having this discussion because 10 years ago it wasn't even a topic of discussion that if someone was good enough they would even bother going to college squash and so that shows that it's a real debate
1: yeah, for sure. I, I think uh, 10 years ago, w- whether they should go or shouldn't go would still be the debate, but whether it was good for them is, was the debate. I mean, there was it was a no-brainer. 10 years ago, you were basically throwing your squash career away. At, no, 15 years ago, maybe you were throwing your squash pro squash career away if you went to college. If you were a top uh, player in college, if you were playing number one for one of the power schools, you were getting like two good matches a year. You, I mean, you were getting better matches when you played, you know, maybe a coach or a, a pro that was in the area, but your basically college career was throwing your racket out on the court and, and winning easily, except for one or two matches a year. So, you know, I think of Julian Illingworth when he went to Yale, I mean, back then there was two or three good number one players and he'd, he'd always, you know, they'd have great matches, but other than that, he'd go play like the number one at Bowden or something like that. And he basically just throw his racket on the court or he wouldn't even play. Because you'd have like the ladder move up because it wasn't even worthwhile him playing. So I think back then, yes, it was a career killer. Now I think it's a different story. And it's interesting hearing some of the people who chimed in. I yeah, think, why
0: don't we provide a little bit of the framework of what the zones of debate are here? If sure. you could give that kind of like the, the different levels.
1: Sure. So I think the, the zones of debate are, are like whether whether it's, I guess Mason's point was, is it hurting the depth? So it basically are people, international kids. Coming into the United States and even American kids playing college squash—is it hurting the depth of pro squash? So, in other words, instead of these players coming right out as juniors, improving from their ages 18 to 22, and thus making the pro going into the pro tour and making it a better tour, he's asking—is—is that being hurt because either one, kids after college aren't going onto the pro tour, or two, that by the time they do come onto the pro tour, they've missed out on their basically athletic prime almost, as he's saying from 18 to 22, uh, if that is your athletic prime. That's his his question. It's it's
0: not athletic prime. It's not an athletic prime. It's what I I believe what he said is their formable years, which I agree with. For sure. That's the debate, whether you think that's the case
1: or not. And I think that's the the debate, whether you think they're getting uh, more valuable experience in college, both mentally and physically uh, or not, or whether it is hurting the pro tour. So uh, I think that
0: is the debate. Is it hurting the depth or not is also there's an element there of like, I'm not sure it matters. No. Like if there were 20, 2,000 more professional players, the question would then be, well, who can make money? Yeah. So going on to the tour does not solve many problems. In fact, it's a hard path to climb.
1: Yeah, for sure. For sure. And, and I guess his his question maybe leads into maybe if there was more depth in the tour, would it be more commercially viable? Which I don't think so. But maybe he's asking that no, also.
0: Absolutely not. We already have tremendous athletes mm-hmm. who are, you know, the sport is underrecognized and underpaid. Yeah, no, I, I,
1: you, you don't have to convince me, Connor. I, I think the question is more, why would you go on the pro tour if you had a chance to go to Harvard? or go to, a, go to a school to play squash for four years? What like? Why would you ever choose not to do that if you had that option? To me, that's more the question. Victor Cruen played a number one at Harvard, and he's had some success on the Pro Tour and won some tournaments. And he put it really well. He said he felt going to college not only helped his squash – not only like on court, but also like the academics helped him focus more on the mental side of squash. And he said the squash helped him focus on his academics. So he said overall, it was a win-win situation for him and he couldn't imagine doing it any other way. And so he had a very learned response. There were some responses that were all over the map as as usual. some some were unreadable actually, but uh, his stuck out to me. And if you go on Twitter, you could read it. And Andrew Douglas, who also put it a whole different way, and basically put it and said the culture of, of squash in the U.S. is what influences CSA participation. So I mean, it's what squash is in the United States. Wh- what it's used for is college in the United States. It's not used to go to the PSA. So if someone goes, good good on them. But if that's not what college is for in, in the United States, it never has been. Not for squash, anyways.
0: Yeah. And I do want to go back to like, this is a very a uh, choice that's made at the individual level. And mm-hmm. there's a certain element that, you know, college squash can provide a lot of structure versus the PSA tour is fairly unstructured and you have to create your own structure. And that's a challenge. So it kind of depends on where that player is in their their personal development. I do think that the caliber of college squash from a playing perspective has just risen tremendously. It used to be, like you were saying, a, an oasis where n- there was no competition. Now there is actually healthy competition. And if I had a a, a a player I was coaching where we were considering the tour versus college, I would say, well, let's apply. Let's see where we can get in. Then let's evaluate whether that's a good fit or a good option for you. Also, then how much will this cost you? Like, again, and if money is not an issue, that's a separate thing. But let's right. assume money is an issue where, look, take you have a unique opportunity to get into college, go play for two years, see how you like it. And then if you want to continue the next two years, great. If not, then join the tour. You don't have to do four years straight. No, no, agreed. And, and, you know, also think about 18
1: years old or whatever it is when you graduate high school, You how immature these people are and then being thrown into that world where you're booking your own travel, you're having to arrange your own, you know, your own training. When for four years, if you want to go four years for one of these good schools, you go there, you've got four years of facilities, you got four years of physical training, physios, you got uh, coaching, discipline. If you get injured, you're not just like out on your own. Like, can you imagine an 18 year old kid all of a sudden like tears his Achilles or even pulls a hamstring badly in his first, you know, when he's playing on his own and he's at some tour event in Punjab or something like that? Like, what do you do? I mean, to me, you get four years. I mean, look at the CSA individual championships last year. It was basically like a satellite event as far as the quality of play. I mean, it was like a a satellite of a PSA satellite event.
0: I would say Challenger Series. It's it was a satellite. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's it's a high caliber place, and that and that is the difference between a structured environment versus an unstructured environment that you have to create your own structure. And I completely agree. But but let's also, you know, Bill, again, where your your depth of knowledge goes is like this is also a debate that's out there in basketball, in football. You know, yeah, I think,
1: I think the difference is that those other sports are, uh, in college anyways, are th- like the, the NCAA is thought of almost as a minor league for those sports, uh, like college, basketball, in college baseball now more than ever, college football. They're kind of like a free minor league, uh, unfortunately, for the players. Squash has, has, had, has never been that, but it's getting there. Squash is becoming, in college, almost like a minor league tour for these players to now improve their game, get good coaching, and then get put out as age twenty at age 21 as mature adults on the pro tour where they could either thrive. They're not going to not, not thrive because of things other than their skill. They're not going to get torn down because of their immaturity or because of other things that may have uh, felled them when they were 18. So same idea was supposed to be is supposed to be for co- other college sports. Those other you, you could debate whether they're being um, they're being used for for other purposes. Um,
0: you know, I know that's what I think that was the exact distinction I was trying to make that there if now college squash is becoming this farm league to cultivate talent while also achieving a, a college education, mm-hmm. that becomes more of a viable opportunity. And if we're looking at other professional sports that they're taking those same stepping stones that they're not entering the pro league until they are 21, 22, 23, 24 sometimes. Right. And it's okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, no, agreed. Agreed. And, and as squash, you know, when we're hoping,
1: and we talked about the deal, um, with in front last week, the Wanda group, if, if squash does get to the level that, um, deal, we hope bring squash to the high level. There's going to be other jobs in squash. So if you're a college squash player, you don't necessarily have to be a pro tour player to be involved with the sport after college. There, there's going to be marketing jobs available. There's going to be you know squash podcast jobs available. There's going to be media jobs available, uh, tournament organizi- organizer jobs available. I mean, you can make a career in squash. Yeah. Most of the time now, the ex players, if they do make a career in squash, they become coaches, pros at clubs and things such as that, but their opportunities are going to grow if the sport does indeed take off like they're hoping it does with this with this media deal.
0: No, to- totally agree. And I think that's what we're seeing is we need to rise as an industry, if we think of squash as the industry, and in that there's lots of industry jobs that if you have that passion and you have that uh, expertise or willing to learn, there are lots of other things versus just becoming a, a pro tour, like you yeah. can be part of the ecosystem. So- I completely agree. And, you know, I think some other questions, though, because all this actually stems from junior squash. Mm-hmm. So when you're looking at this and, and same thing for junior basketball, right, or high school basketball, who is ready to go into the pro tour? Sometimes they're not ready. Right. Let's ask that question. Certainly. Right? Then, certainly. Bill, you know this better than, than I do, for sure. Like, think of other, um, you know, who will, who will make it? That is not clear. Not many. Not not many.
1: And, and you know in junior, other junior sports, basketball like the AAus and the in the baseball traveling leagues and and all those other sports, they're all designed there there is that element that the one or two outstanding kids do have a pro future and they they take that kid and he gets developed any whether he does a year in college or whether he goes right to the pros or to with the G league in the NBA. But for the most part, just like in squash, it's there to develop college for college athletes and to get to, you know you're you're playing AAU basketball and traveling all over the country as an eighth grader in the hopes of getting a scholarship. I mean, that's why you're doing it. There's there's the love of the game, but you're also doing it to hope to be noticed and be able to play in college. And and that's really the, yeah. the end all be all for the most part because the percentage of people, as you know, who go to pro in any pro sport, um uh, um yeah, is it, very limited. And just, just one more, you know, we're talking at the, the top the, the the top kids like Victor and Andrew Douglas and things like that. But if you even talk to um, so I talked to our friend, Tim Lasusa, who played a couple PSA events. And he said, if he never went to college, he never would have played any PSA events. He said he came out, he went into college, you know, he, he developed more as a squash player in those four years than he ever did. And he never would have played on the PSA, any PSA events, unless he had played his four years at St. Lawrence. So there's those kids also, those, those, uh, juniors who go and do that, who then never considered it and then become PSA players. So it it kind of reverses the dynamic that, uh, that Mazen was
0: talking about. So there was one other part um, of the debate that I think would be helpful for us to provide some clarity. And I also know that there's a lot of stuff I don't know in the topic about to bring up. However, one of the questions was, well, why can't college players also play on the professional tour? And that has to do with a little bit of what's it's it's regulated under the umbrella of the NCAA. Mm-hmm. Now, we also know within College Squash that essentially it's a very young league, so to speak, and it's not very... Formal, as compared to the full NCAA of basketball or soccer or you know you name it. So, what is your take on why can't a player compete on the professional tour while attending college?
1: I think they can. I mean, Crewins uh, Crewins is an example. I mean, he, he he's probably won <laughs> he's won a bunch of events while in college. So, I think it depends on the person. That's you're well, talking so about. Spell
0: out the restrictions.
1: So I'm guessing uh, the restrictions. So although it's not an NCAA sport, I believe it's still restricted as far as money, prize money you could take. So you can go and play okay. these events, but I think the and I could be wrong, but I believe you can take enough money to cover your expenses. I think is how that yeah. works. So you prize money is
0: huge, anyways. But that, I think that's the biggest restriction. So it is a strange rule, and the, and it really is so dependent within Division One, Division Three, Ivy League, non-Ivy League. But at the the boil down simplicity is as, as i knew it this rule at least four years ago was um, per event you can't take more than your specific expenses for that event which doesn't take into consideration all the costs involved to get to that level and we're literally talking about with these events that you're only making 700 anyway right right and no. so th- there's and what that is allowing players to do is to get a jump on maintaining a psa ranking period which is challenging yeah, you know, no. Spencer Lovejoy, I think he's he's ranked 113. So, you know, that's a great credit to the US squash system that was making sure that anyone that wants the opportunity is a stepping stone to go on the pro tour after they've graduated that they're in a position for better success. Right. So, it'd be interesting
1: to see since since college squash at this point isn't isn't governed by the NCAA as it were as by NCAA policy, though they do follow them uh, and the schools follow them. Whether what happens to the NCAA is what players hope, like, so the college player, the college football and basketball players can money while they play in college. Will that affect squash that's not an NCAA sport, and will they in turn allow the Victor Cruins of the world to go play a tournament and accept the prize money? So w- will they follow in that step? Because, I mean, in the, in the end, college basketball and football are masquerading as amateur sports when, indeed, they're making billions and billions of dollars So and, and
0: basically using the kids <laughs> to, to do so. For those who aren't following that debate as closely, do you want to give the the sixty second overview on that? Again, I, I probably should have done
1: a little bit more research. So there, there's a player named Ed O'Banion who was a basketball player at UCLA years ago. Uh, not you know maybe twenty. I don't even know. Maybe twenty years ago, he was being used uh, for an NCAA video game. Uh, the NCAA two point. I don't play video games, so let's call it NCAA two K just for, just to make up a name of what a video game would be called if you played video games. And his likeness was being used. Yeah, it's pretty good, right? (laughs) Um, His likeness was being used in the video game, which the NCAA was making money off of, and he wasn't getting any of it. And so he sued the NCAA. So there's a case, and I believe it's still in front of the courts right now, whether it's at the Supreme Court or not, I don't know, that uh, whether or not he should be, able to make money off of that and then it all stems up from whether other players can do it whether they could get money from their jerseys being sold so if you're the quarterback for clemson and you wear you know trevor lawrence's jersey trevor lawrence the quarterback from clemson thousands of people maybe millions buy his jersey with his number on it and he gets no money from it so it's it's that's that's where the the court case is going to lie and it's it's a big deal because if they do make it it could change it'll change ncaa sports forever and the NCAA is fighting back ferociously against that, trying to, trying to uh, say that yeah. it's the integrity of the game. It's big but business. It's big business, that's all it is. So it is
0: big business. And the distinction there is also, you have to look at what is the purpose of going to college, right? Are you there to play football? Or are you there to get academics? And they always refer to them as student athletes, when in reality, if you look at a football or basketball player's schedule of what they have to do in order to maintain that scholarship, to maintain participation within that program, it's incredible. Like, I don't know how these players do it or balance it. And some of them don't care about the academic side of it. They're, they're using it as a stepping stone. And some really yeah. lean into, yeah. hey, what's my fallback plan in case professional X or professional football, basketball doesn't work out?
1: right right exactly so i, I think um this, this we have a, a special guest coming on at the end of the, our first ever guest on tbd at the uh coming up it's uh, the executive director of csa squash to talk about this and he may have some more learned opinions than us he got he got into the debate a little bit on twitter and we invited him on so we look forward to having hearing him a, after we're done here so i think we'll, we'll wrap up our segment and um my final thought on it is in the end with when it comes to college squash in the pro squash debate i, I think the bigger view of it is in the end college squash has just developed more in the last 15 years than the pro squash tour has and that is to me that's the bottom line i think it has developed more as an organization than the psa has so the reasons for staying in college squash
0: far outweigh the reasons you would ever have to go to the go on to the psa tour i i don't know if i agree with that sentiment i think the pro tour has done a lot to distinguish itself and kind of like what we talked about last week with the broadcast and i mean the sure. tour itself can Compared to ten years ago, is in a very different position. What I would say is that college squash has equally grown to a level that now it's the 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 there's more of an overlap of talent. And if you're treating it as competition versus a stepping stone, then it's not in a correct ecosystem layer. And so, you know, I think there's more development here. But the factors that I look at this are debate are what's the opportunity cost? What experience will I get on either side? What's the exposure of things I'm going to be exposed to opportunity-wise? And then also, what's my purpose? Like, why? If we play this out in 10 years, by the way, either or 10 or 15 years, either way, what are you doing then? You can't be a professional player beyond the age of, let's call it 37, 38. So what are you doing then? And we don't know at the age of 18. No, I got you. Once again, your last
1: word. Ugh was much more much more thought out than my last word but uh, much less interesting but that's okay um well stay tuned it's not going to
0: be the last word on this debate
1: no it is stay tuned for dave pullman
0: all right welcome to david who is our first guest ever on the breakdown for an interview? He is the executive director and league commissioner of the College Squash Association, otherwise known as the CSA, and he's in his third season. Welcome to the show, David.
2: Thanks so much for having me, guys. Uh, it's great to be here with you.
0: This is this is really exciting uh, the TBD
1: was formed around having no guests and but uh, you know this topic was so important and it's a, it's an honor to have you and just ha- having our first guest is, is really exciting so great to have you here David
2: well I'm a, I'm a big fan of your first few episodes and um, I haven't had an opportunity like this and uh, so I'm really excited and it's obviously a, a relevant topic for my background and and my profession right now so uh, I'm really grateful that you invited me on
1: so the topic is, where do you like to go on vacation? So I don't know if you knew that or not, just kidding. David, why don't you just give us a little bit of your background for people who don't uh, who don't know who you are and kind of how you fit into this, into the college squash world.
2: Absolutely. So I came into the squash world, not as a junior player, um, played tennis growing up, but, but joined up with the Haverford College squash team when I was uh, an undergrad. Uh, went there to play soccer. Uh, ended up playing both soccer and squash, and for four years. Shout out to Sean Sloan, uh, who was the coach at the time of the Harvard squash team. He was a great mentor of mine, and really set me on a path to be where I am today. I um, got into athletics administration. Pretty soon after college, I started out at a small school in Long Island, the U.S. Merchant Marine Academy, then went to Columbia University. I worked at Columbia for eight years, the last four of which I was the uh, associate athletics director who oversaw the squash programs, along with a number of other of our athletic programs in the Columbia Athletics Department. And then about three years ago now, this... Position opened up with the CSA. I knew I'd been following along as both a a fan, um, a recreational player, and an administrator with the things that were going on with the CSA. And um, the executive director, league commissioner position opened up, and a few people reached out and said, Hey, this is kind of an intriguing position. You might want to take a look on it. Your, your background fits in somewhat nicely. And, and I'm grateful that those people spoke up because it, it, it does. And, um, I'm here now third season, uh, unfortunately COVID interrupted season, but you know, really enjoying where we're going with this and just, um, having the opportunity to take on some of these challenges and questions that are, that are affecting our game.
1: So. Why we have you on today, um, and you're aware of the uh, and uh, hard to hard to call it a controversy, more of a question did a uh, pro player from Egypt Mazen Heshem that the, the... And we talked about this early in the podcast throughout there in a nutshell, wondering whether the explosion, as it were, the growth of college squash in the United States is hurting the depth of the PSA tour. So affecting the quality of the PSA tour. And it uh, it led to a lot of back and forth on social media, <laughs> which is not always the best place to have these kind of discussions. Uh, so in, instead of that, we decided to have you on uh, to kind of talk about that question and, and get your point of view.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And for those who were following along, I, college squash um account did chime in with some statistics about college squash current players and alums who who are in the top 100 but yeah I, I i gather that that was not really the core of the question although it is exciting that a number of our current and former players are, are reaching high levels of the game the more i thought about it and, and read and followed along I'm concerned about uh, I think the the question the core question itself because the PSA and college squash US college squash are they're two organizations with very different purposes you know college squash overall between our varsity and club programs have about 1400 student athletes um, across the spectrum and across the playing spectrum as well, in terms of in, uh, in terms of uh, playing level and interest in the game and, and where they are, and so I see us as really trying to cater our game to to all those levels. You know, we want to. We want to have it available for everybody and not just the highest level. It was never, or at least in my estimation, it was never meant to be just, you know a breeding ground for the pro tour or a place where pro players could come and play. There are so many different types of players and players with different interests who come through college squash. That's not really a consideration. Um, what I will say, and I think I was getting at this a little bit with the comment about more players from the CSA populating the pro rankings is... I think it's really changed over the last three to five years and more and more players, both domestically and internationally, are seeing uh, College Squash as an avenue to GoPro. And definitely kudos to, you know, Ali, Farag, and Amanda Sobe, and, and now some of the other players who are coming along, even... You know, especially i see some on the women's side melissa Alves, olivia victor you know other players who are coming through sabrina sobe now in the top 20 so we're seeing a lot of players who are able to spend time in college train at a really high level um you know i'll talk about you know, some of the coaches in in our coaching ranks the facilities and take advantage of that sort of stuff to get to the point where they go through four years of college they're able to compete in some pro tournaments and then they're able to go on and pro squash is something they want to pursue at that point, they are able to do that. And um, I think we're seeing that more and more now than ever. You can see with current players, Siva Sangari from Malaysia being at Cornell, uh, Victor Cruen, Yusuf Ibrahim, you know, Karina Taima at uh, Drexel. There, there are lots of players coming up the ranks. And even in those numbers that I quoted, you have players like Uh, Gina Kennedy, who just uh, is having a really successful winter in England, who just graduated from Harvard, is not even in the top 100. Um, I think there's four more players just outside the top 100 on the men's side. So all these players, you know, they've chosen a college degree, a college degree path, and that's really admirable. And it's been their choice. Um, And so they've gone, you know, they've gone that route. And it's been now they're now they're pursuing possibly a pro tour at this point.
0: David, I'd like to jump in with kind of a, a little bit of a framework here. So let's imagine that you are, which you wouldn't be doing, but let's just imagine if, like, you're kind of talking to a, a potential player from outside the United States who is wrestling with the college decision, right? And let's just talk through. And you know, one question I might have is, well, David, why can't I play the Pro Tour and compete in college? And let's talk through kind of what, because there are some rules around that, which I'm not as familiar, or it's been some years since I've touched it. So if you're both laying out the facts of both paths, like, let's talk through that.
2: Yeah. I'm, I'm really glad you brought that up Connor because that's in some of the responses, I feel like there's some information that's, that's missing out there. And, and we're, we're something that we're grappling with actively right now and have been really, since I came on board, I know it's a, it's been a question on people's mind, which is, which points to the change in the, the pattern of people's behavior. Um, College squash in the United States is not an NCAA sport, but all of our member institutions are NCAA members. And so we ask our, our schools to follow the NCAA framework when it comes to a lot of rules. We're, but what, what we're doing in conjunction with that is writing and and um, really vetting and then codifying rules that that are squash specific. And so we're grappling right now with how to strike that balance of players who wanna play pro, but also are committing to playing in college. What the NCAA rules that we're asking schools to follow now say, though, is that players can play professional tournaments while they're in college. And they can, some of them, you know, it, it gets really nuanced really quickly between Division I and Division Three rules. But the baseline is anyone can play. Only Division I players can accept prize money for winning, and they can only do that up to the expenses that they're paying. And all of that is regulated through their on-campus compliance officers. So the coaches help advise, but for the most part, it's something that falls on the player's shoulders to regulate and make sure that they're keeping good records and communicating back with their compliance officer. And this goes to a whole nother debate about amateurism in college sports in the United States, which is a podcast topic for another day. But that sort of being able to accept money up to expenses, but not recoup winnings that they can save and put in their banking account goes to that amateurism question. Um, on the NCAA.
0: So, so along those lines, and again, this is very nuanced, and I, I apologize for putting on the spot, but I kind of am. And, and it's more to help discern some of these this conversations. But let's just say hypothetically Dunlop, uh, this player is sponsored by Dunlop, and they earn 100k. Like, is that allowed? Uh, so um, forget, no. the, forget the prize money. That you you might earn there, but you have another sponsorship deal. So how does that get tackled under the NCAA guidelines? So,
2: so before, uh, as they would be getting to getting ready to enroll with uh, an institution, they would basically put all of that on the table, all of their all of their winnings that they'd had prize money or sponsorships ahead of time. They would bring that to the table with the compliance office and the athletics department and say, hey, this is organized right now. This is how much money I'm making. And depending on which school they're attending, what division it is, they they would very likely have to relinquish that or at least be upfront about it so that everyone was aware of what was going on.
1: To, to simplify then, that but, a little bit, sorry, kind of just want to jump in uh, just for my own understanding. So what is the rules behind players accepting as opposed to a sponsorship that's cash-related, equipment. So if you had a Dunlop sponsorship, could Dunlop go in and drop you, you know, 20 rackets at your college squash court, and can you take those?
2: Uh, Not directly to the player. So a a sponsor to a player is not allowed. The, The player could make an appeal probably to the coach or athletics department and say, hey, you know, Dunlop makes great rackets. I would I would like to use these. You know, can we work through a, a vendor or through you know direct manufacturer type deal to access some some of this stuff? But those sorts of direct to player agreements would have to cease while they were in uh, playing in college.
0: Great. To ask another sort of obvious question here is why, if we're not governed by the NCAA, is it important to follow those NCAA rules? One could potentially say of well, why don't we make up our own rules that fit the best for the community? So, And I know there's a larger picture in mind here, so I just want to draw that out.
2: Yeah, it's a great question. It's something we're, uh, as, as I mentioned before, we're actively grappling with. Um, the difficulty in kind of uh, hoeing our own path is we, we need to get the other stakeholders on board, and we need to make sure that they would agree to that. And those other stakeholders in particular are the, are the administrators on campuses who are sponsoring their our varsity athletic teams? So uh, obviously, not every well, I shouldn't say obviously, but not every varsity sport that's sponsored on a campus is is sponsored by the NCA. So there are other examples out there, but for the by and large most uh, most student athletes on campus, if their if their institution is an NCAA institution, their athletic department is going to treat them as an NCA student athlete. They're going to they're going to vet them. They're going to uh, confirm their eligibility at the beginning of every year and they're going to ask them to, to follow more or less the same protocols. There there are some things you know, like men's intercollegiate rowing for example is not an NCAA sport and the intercollegiate rowing association helps to govern their some of their rules and regulations but for the most part they point back to the NCAA rule book as well. And I think part of that is um part of that is that that relationship that the administrators have the knowledge that the administrators on campuses have with the rules and regulations and the NCAA uh, Understanding that the NCA is not a perfect organization, obviously there's lots um, there's lots of controversy around it. Uh, even even um, you know especially now with amateurism and name, image, and likeness, again you know big questions facing the NCA right now. They do have a comprehensive rulebook that talks about a lot of the these big issues uh, around recruiting and eligibility and amateurism and all this stuff. And so to to go ahead and write our, our own rule book that parallels that, uses a lot of those concepts, but then changes some differently, we'd have to make sure every compliance officer on every campus that sponsors College Squash understands and abides by that stuff. And it would be totally different than the NCA. And it just makes it really cumbersome and kind of puts us out on an yeah. island that we may not necessarily want to be a part of.
0: Which I think makes sense, David, and especially what you're kind of spelling out is like, look, by not following these rules, it just exposes the colleges to immense amount of liability that why even take this on? So let me ask a question. Could a player get into a college, not participate in the athletics department, and go be a a professional player?
2: Yeah, absolutely they could. And in fact, I was thinking through, I was looking at some of the rankings and thinking through... This trying to see it from all angles. And I, I I realized, um, and I don't know these players all that well, or the or the family, but I know, for example, Riam Sedke was a was a phenomenal player, a Betty Ritchie Award winner for the CSA at the University of Pennsylvania. She has a younger sister, Layla, who is from what I understand, is in Washington, her home state, and playing possibly. I'd heard she was attending University of Washington. I don't know that for certain, but um, she's ranked in the top 100. She's 92nd in the world right now and, and playing squash. And so, you know, I think she's following a slightly different path, but the path that you just outlined, if she's attending classes and getting a degree in the United States and but playing squash full time, she absolutely has the possibility of doing that. And it would not be subject as long as she's not, she he or she is not representing uh, a team within the CSA and not be subject to any of these rules.
1: So you mentioned rowing, um, which which leads me to another question. What other sports are there uh, on college campuses that are kind of like rowing and squash where they're not club level sports, but they are uh, not NCAA sports? And is anyone having this same controversy, I guess, if you could call it that, where kid, kids are, you know, another sport where people are saying it's taking away from the the pro sport aspect uh, because these, uh, these guys are playing college sport instead?
2: Uh, admittedly, we are Squash is in a fairly unique position because there's not really, from what I understand, I'm not totally familiar, not really a pro rowing tour. There's not really a pro archery tour. Those are more Olympic track type sports. So people want to aim for, you know, their pinnacle is really the Olympics. Um, rugby is sort of the same. W- women's rugby is an NCAA sport, men's rugby is not. But there's not really, from what I understand, like pro rugby, um, Leagues that that people are are really aspiring towards. So we're in a this unique spot, and we're we're trying to kind of pick and choose where the best practices of other sports that are dealing with this. Tennis is a is often a a prime example, just because they do have some rules that are in the NCAA rulebook about players playing pro coming into college or or collect prize money and things like that. And so that's something as we look at this and what's been codified already. Um, And, you know, we are trying to strike this balance as well as we think about NCAA status. Is that something that squash wants to go with? How does it work with other sports that are similar? And with tennis where there are, there's a pro tour, there's minor kind of like minor tours that college players want to play in. They want to earn points on their way up towards that level. Um, How are they handling that? How are they, how do they handle prize money? And and how is that, how is that adjudicated at at the NCAA level and trying to learn from that?
1: Right. I mean, it strikes me as it's, there's almost the opposite You know, Mason's argument didn't, you know, and, and nobody really agreed with him. So it kind of showed me that it wasn't much of an argument because there's almost the opposite effect going on in other sports where like the soccer academies are leading to the, to the weakening of high school and college soccer. I mean, yeah. these, it, it's its the opposite effect. The pro aspect of that sport is killing the college aspect of that sport. I mean, high school soccer in the Northeast is basically played at like a middle school level at this point because none of the kids are, you're not actually allowed to play high school soccer if you're part of an academy. And these like Red Bull academies and FC Miami academies are really stealing away the college prospects. So the, the pro aspect is doing the opposite effect of what Misen's talking about.
2: Yeah. And I think it, you know, even taking a a, a broader look at it, I think it it um, it goes to the wider point of like people have a choice to make and and they have to kind of look internally to see what their priorities are and, and what the options are available to them as they're pursuing their their chosen sport. So in soccer, uh, for example, um, you have all these academies, you have these club teams that and people are trying to make it to the next step and the next step. Um, and there's so many different options there and so a lot of but I think a lot of those players have the choice to play in high school and play and aim towards just playing in college if they want to, but they're choosing not to do that they, they feel like the club and the academy uh, route is more suitable to them and I think you can still apply that to squash to a certain extent some people are coming in through the junior community and 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 as they're getting ready to make a decision about whether to attend college in the United States or not they're saying well what are what are the what are the options available to me i can i can go pro you know try and train full time and go pro if i you know if you have the support and the flexibility and and what have you um, or they're saying no i don't have that or i want to see what the uh, college is about it's a, you know it seems like a pretty cool experience so i want to take that on Uh, and then if it's, if I continue to grow and develop and I get great training and resources when I'm in college, maybe I'll pursue pro afterwards. If that's something that I want to do, or they're just, they know that they're, they're not quite up to that level and they're not willing to make the commitment to do that. And they say, I'll go and play in college and have a great experience that way. Uh, And then that, you know, that might be the the pinnacle of my competitive career. And they're okay with that.
1: I mean, in, in the end, are are you saying, and I don't want to put words in your mouth that the CSA is actually a, a good thing for the pro squash tour.
2: I would argue that it is because um, it just provides so many options at this point. I mean, if you look at the, uh, I mentioned this before. You look at the um, the coaches and the facilities that have come into the college squash game that are now leading the way and being the main coaches for these for some players. You know, former number ones David Palmer, Terry Linku. Other top player John White, Martin Heath. On the women's side, there are great, you know, former professionals. Shona Kerr, Gail Ramsey won four individual college titles. So there's there's just so many top notch coaches in um, U.S. college squash. The facilities that the schools are are committing to and building are top notch. They they continue to get better and better. Um, and uh, And people are seeing it as a really viable option uh, because they can come in. they they know they can get top level training people who have been there and and seen it all. and um, and they know they have the resources. You know, I saw some something about, you know, college squash should just be all club. And I think that's a bit of a it's it's a nice kind of ideal, but it takes away. You know the the payments for those those top notch coaches, all the resources, the physio, the sports medicine, and everything else that goes along with being varsity athletics. That all goes by the wayside if you if you turn college squash into a club sport. So um, you you lose a lot of that. And and so by by it being a a, a well pronounced, well thought through, well resourced varsity program, uh, it really provides a nice a nice pathway. Maybe not for everybody, but for a certain core group that want to prioritize their education and still hold out the possibility of playing pro down the road.
0: One of the other things, David, I'd also encourage is anyone listening also take a huge step back where let's look at the depth. Like being a pro tour player is, A, it's really hard. You don't make a lot of money. But let's look at this. There are, if we look at squash as an industry, there are lots of careers that you could do that weren't there when I was there. Do you want to teach, you know, in the SEA? Do you want to work at U.S. Squash? you want to take a management tour you know marketing for the pro tour like there's other things that you can do to translate your passion with a racket to off-court skills too so you know it's be really tough to to make a go of it on the pro tour and only make money if you're in the top 50 maybe and really in the top 20 so these debates i'm kind of like i think that um, college allows for opportunity to explore things that you might not have been exposed to and i, I said yes or in the on the that my kickoff thing was college shouldn't be for everyone. Maybe it's not the right step. Maybe it's not right for you. Anyway, I think this is helpful to illuminate more of the the different sides. Thanks for uh, chiming in, David. I think this
1: illuminates a lot of questions that were out there. It answers a lot of questions. And it'd be interesting to see the other side. I haven't seen anyone besides Mason, um come out on his side, basically. Just a lot of people dunking on him for the most part. So it would be interesting to see what that other side is. But uh, I think as w- we Agree with you, and we we really appreciate you coming on and and uh, illuminating uh, this for our audience.
2: Yeah, my pleasure. If I can say one more thing, I, you know, I, I did hear you know, just talk about colleges giving four year at squ- squash scholarships and sitting down players from the pro tour for four years. I mean, that's that's clearly not the case uh, for in a number of different ways. The, the number of squash scholarships coming from colleges is very very minimal. So most of these players are. Uh, they may get some financial aid through the university, uh, their institution, but um, you know squash-specific athletic-based aid is 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 very minimal. And and as I mentioned before, no one is really shutting players down from playing. It's a choice that they have. They just need to manage. They're agreeing to come to a college, and so they have academic requirements. and They have to manage their time and manage their their decisions on on what they want to do. But I listen, I think I think it's awesome that the debate is going on and uh that, that Mason brought it up. I'm just what one of my goals in this role is to fill the void where there's been a lack of spread information on, on many fronts. I mean, I'm 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 working on that from a recruiting perspective as well. I think there's been a void for junior players, both internationally and domestically, on filling in some question marks and some holes on the information about the recruiting process. And I think about players' ability to play on the Pro Tour or play in, in just professional events and what they can do to accept prize money. You know, we're trying to fill that void as well. So I'm happy, you know, eager and happy to answer questions down the road as as we sort of find our way to. It's a young, this kind sort of restructured CSA is is a relatively new I'm the first full-time employee that CSA has ever had, and so it's a growing process. It's a, it's, and it brings new obstacles and challenges and questions, you know, almost on a daily basis. And so I'm happy that to be a part, happy and excited to be a part, you know, and in, in, in this role to to help answer those questions.
1: Well, David, when we uh, were talking about having uh, you on, I said that you would be uh, far and away the best guest we've ever had on this show, and 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 you are. You are also the first guest, but, but definitely the best guest.
2: I'll be eager to wear that hat until your next guest comes on.
1: (laughs) Thanks, David. We really appreciate your time today.
0: Well, I just want to echo or build on what you just said. It's like, yes, having someone of your expertise in this role and the dawn of a new era for college squash. I mean, you're really, and the board of directors, I also have to say that in terms of caliber of a board of directors is it's, it's an exceptionally high caliber. And so, you know, progress should be measured in in five year increments, so to speak. And already the first three years is we, we can see the the change that's coming and we can't wait for more to come. So we're cheering for you. And I think College Squash really provided a a wealth of experience for me and a lot of my friends. And actually, I'm about to go jump on a Zoom call with my friends from College Squash. So it's a interesting parallel right there. So thank you for Absolutely. being a guest. And I feel like I could give give you the last word again, David. So I'll let you close it out.
2: Well, I think I I mean the fact that you're doing that and maintaining relationships with with friends you played with in college and uh, through Zoom and having the opportunity to do that just speaks to all the different ways that college squash uh impacts the players who come through the system. Um and and I said at the beginning I I wouldn't be in this role if I hadn't have um decided to go out you know walk onto the Haverford squash team uh so long ago to try and stay in shape really for for soccer season and uh it's it's impacted my life and I'm I'm incredibly in case you can't tell through talking about it, I'm incredibly passionate about it I I feel very strongly about college squash and and the benefits that it brings to college campuses and um I'm I'm eager to kind of lead the way in 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 that regard so Um, I just really appreciate you giving me the opportunity to to chat about it today. And uh, maybe I'll be back on in the future.
0: Of course, David. No, we'd love to have you. Again, the more information we can get, the better. So thank you. Appreciate it. Absolutely. Hey, quick time out to hear a word from our sponsor.
1: Biosport shoes are designed for racket sport players by racket sports players with the knowledge that if a shoe can withstand the rigors of squash, then it will have no problem holding up for any other indoor court sport. No matter what your sport, the Baya Force X is the performance shoe of choice for competition at the highest level.
0: So it would mean a lot if you go to biasports.us. That's B-I-A sports with an S dot U-S. Check out their website. But even better, take their new BIA Force X for a test drive. All right, Bill, this is your favorite segment. And what is it?
1: Fan follow-up, Connor, I, I, you know what I still hate fan fan follow-up, but since we actually got fan follow-up this past week, it 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 okay. transitions uh, to to not my least favorite part of the show.
0: okay. Well, I think also you weren't properly acknowledging the fan follow-up we were already getting. So to those yeah. who uh, aren't being fully recognized by Bill just yet, just know that you're welcome to the club. Um, this, this is what I deal with, uh, for well over 15 years at this point. And, um, it's, it's a unique club to be a part of. So anyway, <laughs> uh, the way that people were reaching out to us was in all sorts of mediums, but, uh, squash radio at Gmail is also an easy one for us to both track, but feel free to keep texting us and on any of the social media. So Bill, turn uh, it over to I- you and give us the breakdown on the fan follow-up.
1: For sure. I mean, last last show, I begged people to follow up, so we they did. I mean, so begging works. So I'm once again, we'll start this segment. Follow up, please follow up. So um, follow ups from uh, Pat from Philadelphia. He, he probably had the quintessential uh, follow up, where where he said, "I feel like you're making this show just for me," which is really what we're all seriousness, all joking aside. Seriously, that is what we're aiming for. We want you know. We, we we don't want to be the squash podcast that talks about the grip and talks about uh, how to how to hit a forehand drive. We are t- trying to avoid that at all costs and we maybe go maybe we go a little too far the other way, but I'd rather do that than no offense to those other podcasts out there, but god if i hear another fucking podcast about how to hit how to hit a forehand drive or listen to some ex pro talk about some tournament he played in like 30 years ago. And, you know, I, I yeah, I, I can't listen to that anymore. So that was the point of this. So so thank you, Pat. We appreciate it.
0: I will also say I love that more podcasts are happening and I welcome it. Anyone to join. And if you need any help, reach out. Yeah, that's what I meant to say. Actually, I apologize. I, I didn't mean to say that I would kill myself
1: if uh, if I heard one more podcast like that. Um, I meant to say, yes, there's always room for more and room for other kinds of podcasts. That's exactly what I meant, Connor. Thank you for correcting me. Um, Jeannie from Boston said it was like listening to a Seinfeld episode, which I believe means that we don't talk about anything. I'm guessing uh, she, she didn't really expound on that. It was more just, I felt like I was listening to a Seinfeld episode. Sounded positive though. Right. also heard someone said there are worse podcasts than yours that make money. So again, <laughs> glowing, glowing praise. Wow. <laughs> yeah yeah uh, this pretty. is amazing you know we our, got our, we gotta, our, we gotta put
0: reviews
1: yeah but then we we put them it's like mostly from like our family and stuff so we gotta we gotta hide those uh andy from connecticut uh a, a squash player uh gave us a ton of topics uh, he wants to talk college squash which we just did he wants to talk uh, maybe to coach dave talbot to see what his uh, his thoughts are now that he's retired uh he we, and we we had talked about that i wanted yeah. to do that yeah yeah i've been in contact with dave We're, we'll we'll get him on the show for sure we'll see how uh, pullman uh, the csa guy works out as our first guest to see if guests will be a thing going forward so people may t- believe it or not people may tire of listening to us i i can't imagine it but i guess there is that world that that happens out there but, uh, Andy weighed in on, uh, the Sally's versus Peppy's debate uh, on modern pizza. He weighed in on everything. It was a really, a really nice email. So, um, did good you, from... did you respond to his email? Yeah, of course. Of course. I just said, okay. thank you. I, as I say to every email that comes in and any text that comes in, I always say, thank you for listening. I don't, I don't argue with them. I don't, uh, don't unlike with you. I don't criticize what they say or call them boring or say that they're not making any sense and putting our audience to sleep. I do not say that to them. So. Um, Caitlin from Massachusetts also uh, emailed in and said, first time listening to the show, her and her husband were driving around and she uh, d- doesn't know anything about squash, but she thought it was funny, which, you know, that that's, I mean, if we're, if we're going to grow beyond our audience, we, uh, we, we need listeners like that. But my favorite email, my favorite, uh, my favorite communication from a fan was once again from your cousin, Kaylee, who last week thought my voice was awesome again and just just basically uh, it's getting uncomfortable actually i'm not sure kaylee knows i'm married i think i talk about it enough in the thing but yeah she she taught she sent me a like a one paragraph email about my voice and how she how much she loves my voice so again hello kaylee that may or kaylee may or may not be a real person but good enough for me yeah
0: i mean it, it's me. sometimes it's uh your imagination is stronger than uh, reality so yeah. hey kaylee at the end I, you know
1: what i think i'm, I'm going to end every show from now on saying hey kaylee in my deepest voice so
0: Hey (laughs) Kaylee, yeah, well, great. Uh, Well, we appreciate all the fan reach out, and um, you know, we're we're, we're enjoying this, and we're gonna keep on going. And yeah, any topics or any uh, any suggestions like that, we welcome it, or I welcome it. (laughs) Good night, Kaylee. All right, Connor. All
1: right, till next time. time. See ya.